Welcome to OB Wannabes, an educational podcast about obstetrics and gynecology and women's health for medical students and women's healthcare providers. All right, welcome back, everyone. Welcome to OB Wannabes. I'm Shelby. And I'm Cassie. And today we are doing an episode on cervical cancer and screening. Um, so I did quite a bit of research for this today, so I'll see how it goes. Um, it really is, uh, I don't know, the topic is very interesting to me, and um, it seems like uh, there's differences in the recommendations uh, for screening, depending on the uh, medical society that you're looking into. So hopefully we'll be able to discuss it in a digestible manner for our um, <laughs> our listeners. Um, And uh, yeah, so uh, first of all, uh, Cassie and I are now on a different rotation since we change every month. And um, so I'm on my gyne-oncology rotation and Cassie's on her general surgery rotation. Uh, So Cassie, what are your impressions of general surgery so far? Yeah, it's been pretty interesting. It's a little different than your typical general surgery rotation where you're just in the hospital going to surgeries all month long. Uh, The group that I'm with has students go to clinic because, you know, patients or your uh, patients don't just magically show up in the OR for you to operate on, uh, especially with elective surgeries, which is a lot of what we're doing. So I got to go to clinic and get to see, you know, pre-op and post-op, the follow-up patients who are being referred over figure out why they're being referred, kind of talk to them about what the surgery they would have um, would be, or if surgery wouldn't be recommended for whatever their condition is, Um, talk to them about the risks and everything, but then also get to go in and see them in surgery. We're doing a lot of robot-assisted laparoscopic surgeries, so it's been really cool to see that. Um, I'm seeing a lot of mainly, uh, I'd say abdominal surgery, so colon, bowels, um, hernias, things like that. Very much enjoying the aspect of surgery, but not so much the things I'm operating on. I'm very excited to get back into um, doing surgery with OB and gyne and focusing more on that. So the best, my favorite surgery so far has been doing um, breast surgery, so lumpectomies and mastectomies and things like that. I find the most interesting, but definitely something I'm excited for in the future. Nice. That's awesome. At least that you're, you know, realizing that you're interested in surgery and maybe want to implement it in your practice. Yeah. Especially since uh, OB's surgical, you got to make sure you can handle that and be interested and okay with being in the OR. So I'm glad that outside of the C-sections I saw last month, I'm still interested in that aspect of surgery. Cool. That's great. So how's Gynot going? It's been good. I've had a lot of fun. Um, And I don't know, I, I don't think I've (laughs) made a decision yet. Like every time I'm like, Oh, I think I'm gonna like be closer to figuring it out. But um, yeah, I, um, my first impressions of Gynoc are one, it's a very surgical heavy um, subspecialty, Mm -hmm. which um, looking back at one of our first episodes with Dr. Rasuli, that was something that she mentioned um, that if you want to be like a um, surgeon in the OB-GYN field, uh, Gynoc is like, um, they're like, you know, the top notch, 
notch surgeons. Um, right. And so I'm seeing a lot of hysterectomies, uh, a lot of salpingo oophorectomies, such a fun word to say. <laughs> um, one of the doctors that I work with, uh, she does robotic assisted um, surgeries. And so that's been cool to see. I've never seen robotic assisted uh, before. And so, you know, the first time I was sitting in the room, um, I was like, whoa, this is so futuristic. Like she's on the other side of the room from the patient, you know, operating, um, you know, from afar and she's speaking over an intercom so that everyone in the room can hear her. So I don't know, it reminded me of like, a movie like a futuristic movie <laughs> it feels like a video game I kind of thought the same thing when I saw my first the robotic surgery I couldn't figure out how we were hearing the doctor because the face is down mm-hmm. looking into the screen and then someone explained to me oh there's a microphone over there and then the speakers over here on the robot so that we can hear everything I was like oh that makes right. that makes sense <laughs> yeah totally um it's interesting uh her take on it you know, she is a younger surgeon. um, And so her um, reasons for, you know, being trained in robotic assisted surgeries is she thought that it would allow her longevity with um, her ability to do surgeries for, you know, decades without putting strain on her body. Um, And she still does some explorative laparotomies and uh, laparoscopies. But, um, you know, being able to sit and sit in a more ergonomic position Mm -hmm. and operate for an hour is totally different than like, you know, having to contort your body to like get the laparoscopic instruments in and stuff. So um, that was something I hadn't thought about before um, with the benefits of robotic assisted. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of choreography involved there too, that I guess I wasn't expecting. Um, The surgeon will like, scrub in first and like make the incisions and set everything up and then like unscrubs goes to the um controller and by the way though for people that aren't familiar with robotic assisted surgery the robot is never autonomous so you know no need to worry about that (laughs) fun fun fact the uh da vinci robot did you know that it's actually made in california I learned this um, from my preceptor. He went to the factory actually where they make the robot and was teasing me on the first day because I had no idea. But uh, yeah, it's made in California. Pretty cool. Wow. But it is really interesting too. I don't know if you've, have you gotten to try it yet? I have. I got to do like a little bit for anyone who I was in the room operating on. I did not do your operation. Don't worry about that. But I got to just um, (laughs) pass out the suture to the uh, first assist in the robot so she could take out the suture after we had sewn in um, the mesh for a hernia repair. And it's really cool. cool. You use like your thumb and your um, middle fingers as you're moving. And it it really did feel like a video game, like a 3D uh, when you're looking into it and trying to get that depth. It was very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was another thing she was telling me is that... um you know, you have a 3D view of everything you're operating on. Whereas when you do laparoscopic, you're looking at a screen and it's 2D. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I don't know. And apparently you have more, you know, sort of risk, uh, wrist movements. Mm -hmm. um, than If you're doing laparoscopy, you can't really have that. Um, So anyways, super cool thing to see. Um, 
the other the other thing I've been realizing with gyne oncology is that they you know yes they are mainly operating on the reproductive system but sometimes um, the bowel can be involved um, whether it's metastatic cancer from the bowel to the ovaries or um, you know a um, uterine or uh, ovarian cancer that's spread to other areas of the pelvis. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they have to be comfortable operating on the bowel if it's involved, um, as well as, you know, the bladder and the ureters. Um, So I don't know, they definitely have to be, you know, highly skilled um, in order to do these surgeries. Um, So I find that a little intimidating. (laughs) comes with lots um, of practice cool. and experience. Absolutely. It's cool to see. They have a really cool schedule. Um, <laughs> they um, operate three days a week, and then they also have clinic for two full days. Mm-hmm. And so you do get a little bit of both. Um, and then they obviously uh, follow with patients that um, have been treated for cancer and are now being followed regularly afterwards. And so you still get that longitudinal care uh, that, that we both like. Um, so yeah, those aspects are pretty cool. Um, trying to decide if I, if I like surgery that much, <laughs> I didn't realize that general ob they typically don't do um, a ton of uh, like hysterectomies, for example, mm-hmm a lot of those surgeries will be referred to a gyne oncologist, even if uh, it's not, you know, a, a cancer, really cancer. Yeah, exactly. Um, because uh, if they have any like coexisting health conditions that can affect, you know, the outcomes of their surgery, if they've had a lot of past surgeries that will make the surgery more complicated Um all of those reasons, if there's any chance that it could be a cancer causing, you know, abnormal bleeding, not just, you know, fibroids or something like that, um, usually they'll refer them to a gyne-oncologist. Um, so I didn't realize that. I figured like, oh, yeah, if it's benign, a general yeah. benign probably does it. But um, it sounds like typically they'll refer out for that. I guess it makes um, sense when you think about it, talking about just how skilled they are as surgeons not that the generalists are not skilled, but, you know, if you're able to send them to someone who that's their bread and butter day in, day out is doing those surgeries, it makes sense. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, anyways, it's been really cool. Uh, I've had a lot of fun and, um, you know, I'll probably have more input by the end of the month. <laughs> and maybe one of these days we can have a gyne oncologist on the show and they can talk more in depth about what they do and the path to to get where they are. Yeah, that'll be great. And on the topic of gynecologic oncology, today we're covering (laughs) cervical cancer. Yes, we are. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit today about cervical cancer, um, what the risk factors are, um, how we screen for cervical cancer, And, um, you know, if there are abnormal screenings, uh, what are the recommendations uh, going from there? Um, So to start out, uh, let's talk a little bit about cervical cancer. It's the third most common gynecologic cancer in the U.S. after endometrial and ovarian cancer. Um, It's um, one of the most common gynecologic cancers outside of the U.S., uh, especially in 
resource limited countries, um, the prevalence of cervical cancer has decreased over time in the US because we have implemented regular cervical cancer screening and the HPV vaccination program, um, what layman might know as Gardasil. Um, so there are two types of cervical cancer. The most common is squamous cell. Um, that makes up about 70% of cervical cancers. And the second most common is adenocarcinoma. And that makes up about 25%. Uh, the last 5%, I believe, are a few more rare types that we won't really touch on today. Um, the uh, common cause of cervical cancer, by and large, is uh, human papillomavirus, or HPV. It's found in 99.7% of cervical cancers. So pretty safe to say that this is the cause. <laughs> um, it's most commonly caused by high-risk strains of uh, HPV. Um, this is actually board relevant for people that are studying for step one and two. Uh, the most common strains that cause cervical cancer are 16 and 18. Uh, the other two that we are, are learning as well for board prep is 31 and 33. Um, there are a few other types that are considered high risk, um, but a majority of them are caused by 16 and 18. Um, so when we look at the risk factors for cervical cancer, um, we uh, divide them up into HPV-related risk factors and non-HPV-related. Um, so for the HPV-related risk factors, we look at basically anything that makes someone more likely to be exposed to HPV. So if they're at a younger age when they have their first um, intercourse, um, if they have multiple sexual partners, um, if they have uh, a high-risk sexual partner, so um, either that partner is known to have HPV or they have multiple partners, uh, that's considered a risk factor. Other risk factors include history of STDs, um, history of vulvar or vaginal squamous intraepithelial neoplasias, and that's thought to be because majority of those neoplasias are caused by HPV. And then immunosuppressed uh, patients. So someone that has HIV, someone that's on immunosuppressant drugs, um, they might be more likely, uh, if they're exposed to HPV, to not be able to clear that from their system. Um, some non-HPV-related risk factors, one of the ones that we learn about a lot in school and that Cassie mentioned um, a couple weeks ago is smoking. Uh, so smoking can actually increase um, a patient's risk of squamous cell cervical cancer by 50%. Wow. Um, so that's pretty considerable. Um, and so, uh, you know, that might be something that you mention in your um, appointments with uh, patients, you know, during the well women exam um, that even though we think about lung cancer or coronary artery disease um, and the like with smoking, it also increases our risk for cancer. Um, someone that is of a lower socioeconomic status because they have decreased access to um, healthcare, regular screening, um, they might not know about the Gardasil vaccination, um, they may be at a higher risk for cervical cancer. Something that I found interesting that I read about, um, and maybe we can talk about in a future episode, maybe read a couple papers on it, um, 
Apparently, the use of um, oral contraceptive pills for a long period of time can increase your risk of cervical cancer. Um, so I'm not really sure, you know, what the reasoning is for that, but it has been correlated that, um, say, someone's been on birth control for over five years, it can increase their risk of cervical cancer. I remember um, seeing that when I was studying for my shelf last month. I'm not positive, and we're going to have to double check this, and if anybody knows please let us know. But I think that it was related to increased cervical cell turnover. So as the oh. cells, because HPV is a, um, or it integrates into the, DNA, the host, the cell's DNA, uh, as the cells are constantly dividing, there's an increased risk for it to be able to um, infect and become a part of the DNA. So I think that that might be the reason why, but you're right, we should, we're definitely going to need to look into that more. That makes sense, though. I'm glad that you had read a little bit about that as well, because <laughs> I was like, there's so many other things that I want to read about this topic, but I definitely am putting a question mark next to this one. Um, there's also um, been shown to be a genetic factor um, that may make someone more likely to develop cervical cancer. There aren't any found markers like, you know, we have BRCA1 and 2 that's related to mm -hmm. breast cancer. Uh, but when they've done twin studies on, um, you know, cervical cancer risk, uh, there does seem to be a genetic predisposition where someone might not be able to clear HPV as well as, um, you know, other, the average risk person. Um, so those are some of the risk factors that we may consider um, when we're deciding on the screening for um, a patient. Uh with the development of cervical cancer, there are four steps um, that I thought might be useful to um, discuss briefly. Um, High-risk HPV infection um, of the transformation zone. This would be the first step in the development of cervical cancer. So the transformation zone is the junction between the squamous epithelium and the ectocervix. So ectocervix is the exterior portion of the cervix that you would see if you did a speculum exam um, and the glandular epithelium of the endocervical canal, so the inside of the cervix. So in that transformation zone, that's typically the area where HPV will infect. Um, the second uh, step in the development of cancer is persistence of that HPV infection. Um, so obviously if HPV is cleared relatively quickly, then, you know, you're not likely to develop a cancer. Uh, this, the third step is uh, progression of clone epithelial cells to precancer. So um, Cassie uh, described this a little bit, but HPV um, will infect the basal layer of the epithelial cells. And it basically hijacks the system where instead of having controlled cell cycles, and cell death eventually um, of the uh, epithelial cells, it will tell them to continue um, to proliferate and grow. And so, um, you know, progression of these cells longer than they're supposed to, growth of the same cell over and over, which would be the clones, sounds very futuristic. <laughs> um, this, this leads someone closer and closer to a precancerous lesion. And then finally, the development of carcinoma and invasion of the basement membrane. Um, at that point, someone has cervical cancer. 
Um, so the reason I bring up these four steps that um, they described on UpToDate is um, in order to develop cervical cancer, the HPV has to uh, persist over time. Um, so HPV is an extremely common infection. Um, a study showed that 75 to 80% of sexually active adults will have HPV at some point before the age of 50. Um, but often the HPV, HPV infection is transient and an HPV infection alone uh, cannot cause cancer. Again, it's compounded with, you know, environmental factors, you know, how long it sticks around. Um, so it, that's important to consider. Um, it is the most common STI, but when 75 to 80% of people <laughs> or sexually active people are going to have it, you know, um, I think as a society, we shouldn't put a lot of stigma around this because it's kind of like anyone who's, you know, walking around and living, you know, you might get HPV. <laughs> well, that's why it's so important that we have the vaccine too, because um, it's pretty mm -hmm. much the only vaccine that we have that is preventative of a cancer. There's no other vaccine really that can do that except for like it's 99, HPV is in 99.7% of cancer. So there's still that 0.3% of cervical cancer. But by and large, you know, having that vaccine is just, I think, so important. And perhaps maybe one day we'll be able to almost completely eliminate cervical cancer. Yeah. And I think um, the screening guidelines, they haven't really implemented HPV vaccination into that. You know, someone who's vaccinated, do they need to be screened as often? Um, but, you know, maybe a decade or two down the line, we'll have more evidence that, um, you know, the generations that have been more widely vaccinated, they might not have to be screened as often, yeah. which is pretty cool. Um, so the mean, the mean age for uh, the a diagnosis of cervical cancer is around 50. Um, but we do, you know, start looking for it in a patient's 20s. Um, and becomes a more common diagnosis, you know, as a patient um, ages. Um, so going into the screening recommendations, I thought I'd talk a little bit about, you know, what is the purpose, what are the benefits of screening, and then what are some of the cons? Um, so this can kind of give us a better picture of why um, society, uh, medical societies kind of differ on what their recommendations are. Um, so the purpose of screening is to to detect precursors and early stage squamous cell carcinoma and adenocarcinoma of the cervix. So we want to find it as early as we can so that we can either prevent the development of cancer or finding it early enough that it hasn't, you know, invaded and, you know, become harder to get rid of. Um, so since implementation of regular cervical cancer screening, um, the number of new cases and the mortality rate has steadily decreased. Um, so in the U.S., we started um, pap smears uh, in the 80s, in, sorry, uh, we started pap smears in the 50s, and then by the mid-80s, the incidence of cervical cancer had decreased by 70%. Oh, wow. So there's, there's a lot of evidence that, like, screening mm -hmm. really helps, um, and uh the other purpose of screening is to prevent the development of inf invasive disease and prevent cervical cancer-related mortality. So if someone has already um, developed cervical cancer, 
we want to make sure that it doesn't become invasive disease, that, um, you know, it doesn't increase their risk of death. Um, and there have been studies that also, also show that um, cervical cancer screening um, is associated with a higher cure rate um, of invasive um, cervical cancer. Um, and again, I think that's a matter of finding it early enough that, you know, you can be proactive and begin treatment as soon as you can. Um, so why, you know, why don't we test women, you know, constantly then? <laughs> well, there's a few cons. Um, for one, uh, you know, most uh, patients that have undergone this, uh, you know, examination, it's not, know that it's not very comfortable. Um, there may be some psycho <laughs> psychological um, effects to consider um, someone that has, you know, uh, health, considerable health anxiety, um, someone who has a history of sexual abuse, and also um, gender minority patients, so non-binary, transgender male patients, they might really dread going to the gynecologist and having a um, exam like this done. Um, so minimizing, you know, how often we have to do this, um, where we're not causing them psychological distress. Um, I think that's an mm -hmm. important thing to consider. Um, the cost of screening and the subsequent testing, if you have an abnormal test, um, the false positive rates, um, you know, they, they do exist. And so, um, you know, if we're screening people all the time, will we have more false positives where we, you know, do a conization, for example, that may affect um, pregnancy outcomes down the line. Um, these are some kind of cons to regular screening that we have I to think consider. Another, uh, you mentioned earlier how usually it's cleared. Most often um, the body will clear it on its own. And I think that's another reason that they try not to do it as often is because if it is that transient infection and it doesn't stick around, uh, why are you testing? So even in the, those numbers of the 75 to 80% of people will have it, uh, you might have it, have had it at some point, but never know because you weren't tested during that time, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. And I think that's why um, we don't recommend, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we don't typically recommend that, um, you know, teenagers get a pap smear because even though they may be likely to have a low-grade lesion, for example, um, they're also extremely likely to clear that infection and, you know, for that lesion to regress um, over time. Um, but yeah, there, there definitely are differing opinions and I'll sidebar for a second here that um, I've talked to um, a general OB-GYN recently that said, well, you know, my wife, I, I want her to get a pap smear every year because, you know, I don't want something to develop over three years that, you know, um, could have been addressed right away. So I recommend that all my patients get a pap smear every year. And, you know, that's just, you know, uh, his opinion. He wants to be very vigilant. Um, but then talking to one of my preceptors, I said, what do you think of this, you know, <laughs> this take on screening? And she said, oh, that'd be a waste because, you know, the likelihood that you're going to find something every year um, is pretty low. Um, and, you know, it's a waste of tests, 
maybe a waste of the patient's time comfort and uh you know the comfort <laughs> their anxiety that they have um at, at your visits so um anyways these are the things that we consider uh when deciding how often to screen someone uh, so what are the different ways that we can screen for cervical cancer? There's basically three stems of this. Uh, the first is the pap smear, which I think people are most familiar with. Um, another term for it is cervical cytology. And basically, we're looking at the cervical cells and seeing if there's any abnormalities there. Uh, for a pap smear, um, you would need to repeat the test every three years. Um, it's been shown that um, testing less than every three years uh, has the same detection rate of cervical cancer and the incidence of developing a high-grade lesion in less than three years is very low. Um, so uh, if you do a pap smear on someone every three years is sufficient. Um, the second arm of you know the available methods for screening is the primary HPV testing. Um, so on the same cells that you would sample with a pap smear, you would be testing for HPV DNA. Um, there's only a couple FDA approved HPV tests. And so um, from my reading uh, on UpToDate, they were saying that because um, these couple of uh, HPV tests aren't widely available in the US, um, even though this would be a great way to screen people, it's often, um, you know, kind of second line. Um, the third arm is co-testing, which is a pap smear plus the HPV testing. And um, this is another common way to screen. Um, I think because it has a few more options of FDA approved tests in order to test for HPV. Um, so if you do the co-testing or the primary HPV testing, um, they only need to be done every five years. So you get a couple more years in there instead of the every three for Sounds nice years. to me. <laughs> I know. Yeah, can't wait to be 30. Um, <laughs> um, so we'll talk a little bit about the screening guidelines, and I'll focus on average risk patients. So these would be people that are immunocompetent. They have no history of cervical dysplasia. They haven't been exposed to DBS, uh, which is a compound that women used in pregnancy like back in the 50s. So this uh, generation of uh, doctors, we probably will not see um, someone with that uh, exposure, but something to consider. Average risk, haven't been exposed to weird chemicals, no history of cervical dysplasia and immunocompetent. Um, so again, the guidelines kind of vary uh, depending on the organization, um, but I'll mainly focus on the American Cancer Society and the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, USPSTF. <laughs> neither, neither rolls off the tongue, so. Um, uh, and these uh, screening guidelines uh, like I said before, do not um, change based on a person's vaccine status, but they may in the future. Oh, so we'll, we'll go step by step by age. Um, if someone is less than 21, uh, we don't recommend uh, testing for um, cervical cancer, regardless of um, them being sexually active um, or you know having a younger age of first intercourse. 
Um, they're more likely to clear an HPV infection uh, spontaneously. And so there's no need to um, check in this population. Also the occurrence, the incidence of cervical cancer is extremely low in this age group. And so that's why we don't screen just yet. Um, so next, uh, going by the USPSTF, <laughs> such a fun, fun acronym to say, um, going by their guidelines, um, you would start a cervical screen, cervical cancer screening at age 21. Um, and you would start with a pap smear every three years up to the age of 29. Um, and then once uh, a patient is at age 30, um, you would do a, um, there's actually a few different things here. <laughs> I, hope, I hope I'm like explaining this in a um, way that It is really confusing <laughs> and the guidelines change pretty often. Mm -hmm. And since it's not one set of guidelines, I think that makes it a little more difficult. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So bear with me here. At the age of 30, there's three options, but the preferred method that most doctors in the U.S. will do is a co-testing every five years. So again, that's the HPV plus pap smear. They can also do a primary HPV testing every five years or a um, pap test every three years. Um, and the uh, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, ACOG, um, they still align with these recommendations um, put out by the USPSTF in 2018. Um, as of September of this year, um, the American Cancer Society came out with different guidelines that are a little bit different than what I just mentioned. They recommend starting screening at age 25 instead of age 21 and doing the primary HPV testing every five years. Um, they also say, you know, if you can't do that, you can do the every five-year co-testing or the every three-year pap, uh, pap smear. Um, but, uh, you know, these are fairly recent guidelines, and it sounds like um, a lot of organizations, a lot of physicians are still following the old guidelines, um, but we may see that change over the next couple of years. Um, and then over age 65, if someone is average risk, um, meaning, you know, what I mentioned before, they haven't been exposed to anything weird and they've had normal um, cervical screenings in the past. Um, and those that have had a hysterectomy for a benign disease, you can discontinue screening in those groups. Um, so someone that's had adequate previous screening is defined as someone that's had um, at least two negative uh, HPV tests in the last 10 years, or at least three negative pap smears in the last 10 years. So basically, they've been good for the last 10 years, and they're over 65. Hysterectomy was for not related to cancer, and they haven't had any abnormal screens in the last 20 years. Yes. Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> um, in, in 
groups that are considered high risk, um, it's recommended that they have cervical cancer screening for their lifetime. So that, again, that would be patients that have HIV, patients um, with uh, immunocompromising um, medicines. That was a weird way to word it. <laughs> patients that are on immune suppressants. Um, yeah, it's recommended that they get a pap smear, you know, uh, through the end of their lifetime. Okay. So what happens if there's abnormal test results? Um, so what happens if there's an abnormal cervical cancer screening? Uh, so I'll talk a little bit first about, um, pap smears or, uh, cervical cytology. Um, the possible results that you can have from a pap smear include, uh, ascus, uh, atypical squamous cells of uh, undetermined significance, L-cell, low-grade uh, squamous intraepithelial lesions, H-cell, which would be high-grade um, squamous intraepithelial lesion. There's also a couple others, uh, atypical squamous cells cannot rule out H-cell and atypical glandular cells. Okay, so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the cervical cells and seeing, do they look weird? And if they do look weird, um, there's some new recommendations as to what to do next. Um, these are relatively recent. Um, basically, there's a um, calculator that you can look up online, um, and it, it calculates a individual's risk of developing um, CIN, which is cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, three, so grade three or higher, so that would be, you know, squamous cell carcinoma, adenocarcinoma, um, in the next five years, or what is their immediate risk? Uh, and once you calculate that risk, you decide whether someone should, um, you know, be screened just at a regular interval, if they need to be followed up more frequently, like in the next year. Um, if someone's immediate risk of CIN3 or higher um, is found to be above 4%. Um, typically, they'll be recommended to have a colposcopy or um, depending on the percent risk, they might um, be given expedited treatment. Um, so I'll talk a little bit more about those. Um, but as a sidebar, um, those of you that are studying for um, board exams, uh, the questions on there will probably go by the old algorithms. Um, and so uh, you might need to look up, you know, if someone has ASCIS, what, what screening do we do for that, depending on their age? You know, if they have LCIL, it's a little bit more vigilant um, and so on. Um, so, you know, take a look at those uh, if you're studying for a board exam. Um, I won't go into them here because it might be confusing for me to try to describe them verbally. And um, again, uh, usually you can find a nice visual algorithm online where it kind of maps out, you know, the different steps. Um, so what is a colposcopy, which would be your next stage of, you know, investigating an abnormal lesion? Uh, this is uh, a magnifying device that they can use in a um, gynecologist's office to look at the cervix, you know, up close and see if there's 
abnormal vessels, uh, visible changes to the cells. Um, if there is something suspicious there, they might decide to do a cervical biopsy um, and maybe even an endocervical sampling, so sampling the inside of the cervix. Um, once someone um, has done a cervical biopsy, uh, you can determine, you know, is this uh, CIN? And if so, what grade is it? Um, so the grade is determined based on the degree of dysplasia. Um, and again, it's one through three. And, and once we are in the two and three range, um, we are, you know, considering this a high grade intraepithelial lesion and um, they likely will require treatment. Um, so if uh, the OBGYN does decide that, um, you know, a patient needs um, treatment for a local lesion to the cervix, um, there's two main um, arms of this. There's excisional treatment and ablation. Um, ablation would be just basically burning off the lesion um, with either cryotherapy or laser. Um, we don't typically do this because if you burn it off, you have no biopsy to, you know, look at it under a microscope and say, okay, this was cancer or, okay, it wasn't, you know, uh, it doesn't give us any information that way. And so typically they'll do an excisional treatment. Um, so they'll cut out um, the lesion and the, you know, area surrounding that lesion by either LEAP, which is um, short for loop electrosurgical excision procedure, aka basically a loop wire with an electrical current. So they'll cut it out that way, or they may um, use a scalpel and do a conization. Um, so literally they're cutting out a cone-shaped biopsy um, of the cervix. And they'll usually do this type of excision if they're concerned about involvement of the endocervix, because you can go deeper into the cervix with that method. Um, so that's kind of the breakdown of, you know, what are the recommendations for screening? Um, what do we do if something looks weird? And uh, yeah, basically cervical cancer screening has been shown to be extremely important. More than 50% of those who develop cervical cancer have not been screened appropriately. Um, a lot of them, you know, when you ask them when was the last time you had a pap smear, they say they don't know. Um, so the more that we encourage patients to have regular screening, the more likely we are to find these lesions earlier and prevent the actual development of cancer. So what well, did I miss, Cassie? You did a really good <laughs> job. I know this is a tough topic. It's got a lot of um, very specific uh, data, so it's not as... Um, as an abstract of a concept, but um, I think it's really important for our listeners to understand, you know, especially why we're doing our screenings. Like you just said, more than 50% of when, uh, people who develop cervical cancer have not been screened appropriately. And even earlier, um, talking about how much the uh, incidence of cervical cancer decreased since screening started. So I think it's important as providers, or even if you're not a healthcare provider and you're just someone listening to this podcast, to really make sure you understand why it's important to be screened. I know um, I recently had an OSCE or standardized patient encounter where uh, it was just for a general physical, and I asked my patient, 
Um, you know, when's the last time the patient was a woman, you know, when's the last time you had your mammogram? When was your last pap smear? And when I said, okay, well, you, you know, you don't know when you had them, I recommend doing them. She said, well, why it's, I think the doctors just want to, you know, take my money. And that's what she was supposed to do was to, you know, be a little combative. And my job as the provider was to educate her, to tell her why we wanted to do this screening. It wasn't because we are trying to get money from her or anything like that, but because we want to be able to find if there is cancer or something that could develop into cancer, find it early, like you said, Shelby, so that we can, because if you, the earlier you find it, the better um, your chances are of being able to cure it or for it to be in remission or, you know, have an improved quality of life. So I think that that's really important to understand and explain to your friends, to your patients, to your family, whoever it is, um, why screening is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, and then maybe in another episode, we can talk more about, you know, what are the treatment options for cervical cancer? I'm definitely learning a lot about that uh, in my rotation right now. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think at this point, I think we're seeing a gradual decrease in the incidence of cervical cancer, and it might decrease even more over the years with uh, the implementation of... um, vaccination. Uh, and so again, these, uh, these screening recommendations might change again, you know, likely, you know, definitely while we're practicing as physicians. So, you know, just be sure you're checking the practice bulletins and, and all that. Um, it's definitely, (laughs) it's definitely been a journey to understand everything, but hopefully, um, you know, we described it in a you know, like I said, digestible manner that, um, you know, when you go on clerkships, you know what's going on and you can, you know, tell the patient, you know, here's how often we need to see you. Something um, that I wanted to point out is, you know, we're talking about cervical cancer. So obviously affecting um, people who have a cervix, so mainly women um, or someone who was born female transitioned to male and still has a cervix. Uh, HPV can also cause other types of cancer. And we mentioned it as an STI that 75 to 80% of adults will have by the age of 50. They'll have had it at some point in their life. We're able to test for it in women, but I think it's important to note that we aren't able to test for HPV in men. Um, You can do anal pap smears for high risk men uh, to see if they have it, but it's not like other STIs where, you know, chlamydia and gonorrhea that you can get screened both men and women to see if you have it or not. Um, for a male, you can't go to your doctor and say, oh, I'd like to get tested to see if I have HPV. There's no test that exists for men. So there's no way for them to know. So I think that's something important to keep in mind as well, um, which is why it's very important for uh, men to get the HPV vaccine, not just for women, but for men too. And right now it's currently FDA approved, I believe for age nine to 26 to have the vaccine. So um, if you or, mm-hmm. you know, you have a child or someone who is of that age and has not had that vaccine, I think it's highly recommended to do so. Um, even if, you know, for men who aren't at risk of cervical cancer, but could be the nidus for giving HPV to a woman who then ends up developing cervical cancer later in her life. Yeah. And also, you know, increases the risk of uh, anal cancers, oral pharyngeal cancer. Um, So yeah, it's definitely important. And I think the earlier that they can be vaccinated, the better. Um, You know, I think sometimes this can be kind of a taboo topic in America because we think, you know, why are we vaccinating against HPV and 
nine-year-olds, but it's, it's just covering our bases so that we are, you know, protected um, before we're exposed to HPV. Um, so, you know, whether, you know, your first stage of intercourse is 21 or 15, um, you know, if you got that vaccination when you were a kid, then you're covered. Um, because the thing is, if you're vaccinated after you've been exposed, you may, you know, already be infected with HPV and the vaccine mm-hmm. doesn't and work. And they've done that studies point. that show that um, having the HPV vaccine um, at a younger age does not increase um, sexual activity in kids. It doesn't decrease the age of first intercourse. So there is no prob- uh, no bearing on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important important to note um because that's definitely kind of a well, it looks like we're gonna have to do an episode on hpv and the hpv vaccine as well in the future i think a lot of to unpack there yeah too. absolutely absolutely i am a self-proclaimed virus nerd so i'm happy to <laughs> talk about that yeah. in the future well thanks shelby for teaching us about cervical cancer and the screenings and pap smears and all of that and i think Up next week, we're going to be talking about mammograms and um, so some more screenings that you would expect to do at a well woman visit and kind of what that entails. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. We are third-year medical students at Toro University in Nevada, College of Osteopathic Medicine, and we are student members of ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and ACUG, the American College of Osteopathic Obstetricians and Gynecologists. The views expressed in this episode are not representative of any of these organizations, and this podcast is not affiliated or associated with any of these organizations.